Greetings, this is John Duvall in another episode of the Truth Factor Discussion. We'd like to thank you so much for joining us for today's study. Um, last week we concluded our study of Acts chapter 13 and this morning we're going to be looking at Paul's continuing journey with uh, Barnabas as they continue with what is normally referred to as the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. And he'll go through a series of different cities, and Mike will be leading us on that journey here in a few minutes. But before we do that, let me turn it over to Paul. And Paul, if you would let everybody know how they can participate in today's discussion. Certainly, John. We're very excited that you are watching today. And uh, there are several ways that you can watch in the future and you can participate. Uh, you might find the very easiest way is to just go to our youtube.com slash truthfactorlive and find the live video there and you can make comments and ask questions in the chat that's beside the video. You can also do something very similar with Facebook, facebook.com slash truthfactorlive, uh, Twitter, uh, you can do the same or you can go to our website at truthfactor.com uh, and look at the live viewing page and there's a way to interact there. Now you may like to send an email, maybe you like to think about what we've talked about today and at a later time, or even during the course of our study, send us an email, and you can send that to questions at truthfactor.com. That's questions at truthfactor.com, and we'll try to respond to your question either via email or live on the air as we're able to. Looking forward to today's study. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate that. Well, Mike, I'm going to turn it over to you, sir, if you'd like to go ahead and kick us off with today's study. We are at Acts chapter 14, and I appreciate very much the opportunity to guide the study and looking forward to the participation of all of you, brethren. At Acts chapter 14, let me begin by saying, if you are a young preacher contemplating becoming a preacher, chapter 14 could be one of the most discouraging realities that you'll ever read in the New Testament. We're going to find... Paul and Barnabas encountered ab absolute death threats and death uh, uh, attempts toward them simply because they preached the gospel of Christ. So I hasten to tell you, this did not deter Paul and Barnabas from their work. They continued in faithfully, even after Paul was stoned. We'll find in this chapter that uh, after a bit, stands up and returns to the city in exact fashion as before to preach the gospel of Christ. I'm going to ask, uh, I'm going to ask Brian, if he would please, to read verses one through three, and then we'll introduce the chat room question and get on with our study. Brian, if you would please, chapter 14, verses one through three. Thank you very much, Mike. Uh, now, it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews, and so spoke that a great multitude of both the Jews and of the Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Pardon me. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was all bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Thank you, Brian. Now in the chat room question, I've asked this. Why is it the speech of the unbelieving Jews who stirred up the Gentiles, why is that speech called poison to the minds against the brethren? That's an interesting term. They poisoned the minds of the brethren. But the first question that we want to discuss, and I'll let whoever wants to jump on this one take it, 
Why is it that Paul and Barnabas would have gone together into these synagogues to preach the gospel? Why, why go as, as a tandem team? Tom, go ahead and take that one, if you would. Or Shelton, I guess you, you can do that. All right. Um, I mean, I think it's always a good idea when we're preaching the gospel or studying with somebody, whether it's a you know personal study in their home or something like that, to have somebody else with you. Um, it might have been, in their case, for safety. Uh, able to answer people's questions, uh, you know, things like that. Being being alone in some of those cases could prove to not only be dangerous, but uh, maybe not as beneficial as if you had somebody there with you to help you uh, answer questions that people might have or things like that. Well, I agree with that. Yeah, also, you, you, go ahead, Tom. Uh, and you just simply have the idea that you're not alone. You know, I, I mean, because you're, you're dealing with a message that's going to be rejected by the majority. And and I don't care what time frame you're in, the majority are going to reject it. You got somebody with you, you're not alone. Well, keep in mind that as Paul and Barnabas are together here, they are also helping Jews to transition from the law of Moses, and they're informing Gentiles who, for the large part, had been idolaters. The law of Moses said that by the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. While that was not New Testament law, the principle of that still stayed very true. They needed verification. And so with the mouth of two or three witnesses, things be established. And that's another reason that they would have gone together. But you're right. They did it because of safety, and they did it for the reassurance of the truth. Now, next, we find that there's a multitude of both Jews and Greeks that heard Paul and Barnabas and this multitude believed. That is, they, they accepted that truth, they would have obeyed it. What is the common, uh, the common matter between both these nationalities that was of great benefit to them? What, what's common between the Jew and the Greek here that Paul and Barnabas would have introduced to them? Well, how about taking that in force? Well, I'd be happy to, uh, Mike. I don't know if I'm thinking just exactly along the same lines as you, uh, but they need the gospel. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, all, all men need to be saved. And uh, the Jews needed to realize that even though they came from a very religious and rich uh, heritage of uh, being the people of God, that they needed the gospel. They needed to learn about Christ and they needed to turn to him uh, because the covenant has changed. Mm -hmm. And we also see that the Gentiles who uh, may not have had that same background, that they need to realize uh, that they need to be saved. It comes down to the fact of realizing that you're a sinner. Uh, and when someone realizes they're a sinner, they realize that there's something that needs to be done. And Paul and uh, Silas here, or Paul and Barnabas here, could tell them about the things that were needed to be saved. I agree with that. Thank you very much for that. Now, they, the problem with preaching the gospel is that somebody's always going to oppose it. Here at Iconium, we find that the unbelieving Jews stir up the Gentiles, and the statement is, poisoned their minds against the brethren. They, they stirred up these Gentiles and, and poisoned their minds against the of the Lord's church. Why did they do that? What, what possible cause is there to have stirred up these Gentiles? Brian? You know, Mike, we're told in other places, uh, perhaps Acts chapter 13 is one example of this, that they were oftentimes envious 
of the success or the popularity of the message of the gospel. And so they worked hard to kind of uh, prevent that envy. And we see that envy, of course, was the motivation, we're told in the book of Matthew, for the very murder of Christ. The envy of the success or popularity of the message Jesus preached was something that uh, that promoted them to his murder. So uh, I would say at least one answer, and there's probably more than one answer, honestly, mm-hmm. but at least one answer we're told elsewhere is that they were envious of the success of the gospel. Well, and that's true. It, it, envy has always been known in my life as the green-eyed monster. It, it seems to not only distort minds, but as the word here is, poison them go back to the chat room there's one more question and tom i'll throw this one to you what what did this envy this uh, malicious mind change what that caused paul and barnabas to do and how did they do it at verse three okay well uh uh in simple terms they dealt with it they yeah it, it says they stayed there a long time they spoke boldly in the name of the lord they they didn't change their speech be, because of it but I think something that we can read into it is they maintained a proper attitude. They made sure that they didn't show this hateful uh, uh, attitude that was that was present at this time. Mm-hmm. That would be one well, thing that I would say about that. And, well, and we do know that God was with them, too, because of the signs and wonders that are mentioned. Exactly. So they backed they, it up. They backed it up with these miracles, and that's that's important to us. Now, in today's world, obviously, we can't do that. The days of miracles in this fashion have been taken away. And what we have is the written word. According to Paul's writing to Corinth, I would suggest that the written word, when preached acceptably, righteously, is much more powerful than even the uh, the miracles of those times. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2 would certainly lend, it to that, uh, lend our understanding to that, to that fact where Paul said that we need to take the more earnest heed to the things which we've heard, lest at any time we let them slip. But Brian, help me, help us out here a little bit, and let's go back to the chat room and see if there's any answers to our question here. Why is this speech of the unbelieving Jews who stirred up the Gentiles, why is it called poison? Has there been any reaction to that? There has. Uh, there has. Gregor Hinckley has given us an answer on our YouTube stream. And uh, we've got that pulled up now. Gregor Hinckley says, The truth of the gospel is life everlasting. The Jews, by speaking the lies, they poison the message. At least that's my guess. So uh, it's a a great observation, the idea of the poison uh, concept and and how it is, you know, of course, poison kills. So, you know, the idea of killing, uh, you know, we're told that even the slightest alteration of the gospel uh, creates another gospel. And poison would be an accurate example of that in the from what Gregor is seeing there. Well, I appreciate Gregor with these answers. He, he's usually he is, is very accurate in his answering, and I appreciate him uh, helping us in our study. Hey, Mike. Let, let's go to you now, and I'd ask for you please to read verses four through seven, and then we'll throw out another chat room question. Shelton? You're muted. I was stuck on mute. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> All right. All right. Four through seven. Please. It says, but the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and, and Derby, cities of 
uh, Laconia. Laconia. And to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. Okay. Now, I'm going to come back to you in a minute, Shelton, for the first question here. But the, the chat room question this time would be, what good would it do to have killed Paul and Barnabas by way of stoning? Uh, that's in this text. What what real good would that have accomplished for anybody when you think about it? But now the first question, Shelton, what is it that divided the city and why this violence? Well, the word that Paul and Barnabas were preaching was what divided the city. You know, in the last section there, we see that uh, the Jews were poisoning, as you said, you know, the words were poisoned, that they were stirring up the Gentiles. And then it moves on to say that part of the people that have heard this message sided with those Jews uh, and part with the apostles, part with uh, with Paul and Barnabas and what and what their teachings were. And so when you have that division, people that are believing what they say, people that aren't believing what they say, what they say, there's bound to be some fighting going on. And uh, when you look at how firmly the Jews held to their traditions and held to their laws, uh, there's bound to be some violence coming out when people come in trying to change it. Well, I, I think of Christ in this statement, and maybe I should have reworded the question a little differently to get to the point that, that I'm driving for here. People have, have accused the gospel or the division here, and they, they misinterpret what Jesus said when he said, I came not to bring peace on the earth, but a sword. And he would set at variance the father against the son, the mother against the daughter, and so forth. And while, while we understand that, would you suggest that it's the word of God that does the dividing or the misreception of the truth? The misreception. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead it wouldn't be the, the word itself that causes division, but the hearts of the people that heard the word. That's that, true. That divide. It, the attitude of these people was, don't confuse me with the facts. My mind's made up. And right. that's why the division. So I appreciate that. So, uh, Paul, let's come back to you with question two here with this. Upon leaving this city of Iconium, uh, where did Paul and Barnabas go, and why did they go? Well, uh, we read about those activities there, uh, and um, they fled to Lystra and Derby. verse 6 says, uh, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding region. But uh, while they did go to a different location, they did not stop preaching the word. And so they were committed to, to doing the work. If they wouldn't receive it there, uh, they would find someplace else to go. And, and so a little bit of discouragement, as we've seen over and over again, or even a whole lot of discouragement, did not stop the work from being done. And that's precisely why I began our study the way I did, Paul. I appreciate you saying that. Most of us on this panel have been preaching for a number of years, and encouragement has become an understood part of the work. But we need never get so discouraged that we quit thinking it's not being profitable. We go down through this story, and one of the things that we dare not forget is that every place the gospel's preached, there are souls that believed and obeyed it. And that becomes the important factor here. So let's go back to the chat room then and find out if anybody really is concerned as to what good might have been accomplished by literally killing Paul and Barnabas. Would it have accomplished anything? We have no answers. No answers. <laughs> well, then let's just go ahead, John, and, and suggest this. 
that the only thing it would have accomplished is to silence two men, but it wouldn't have silenced the gospel of Christ. Mm-hmm. It, it just yeah. keeps on keeping on. Those of us that have obeyed the gospel have a responsibility. I've taught this for years, and it's not because it's my teaching. It's the Lord's teaching. When we obey the gospel, we've had a, 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 Jesus said to the apostles in the beginning, John 28, into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, teaching them, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you to observe. With that, notice that once you're baptized— you're taught to teach the same thing to others. It becomes a chain that once you've been taught and baptized, your obligation now is to teach others to, to be baptized and teach others the gospel to be baptized and so on. If Paul and Barnabas had been stopped in this, I'm convinced the brethren would have kept on preaching. That's what it's all about. It's not the preacher that saves you, friends. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. There was a comment uh, that came back up in chat. Um, sure, really go ahead. Right. Our YouTube chat. Uh, and that comment, I'll read it. Just uh, I'll read it. And talk, uh, John doesn't have to put it up. Uh, Gregor Hinckley says, Stoning was a standard punishment for blasphemy. By killing them, they thought, I'm sure, they'd, they eliminate the message. So Gregor's kind of, I think Gregor's got an interesting observation there that stoning them would have been implicit to suggest that what they were saying was blasphemy. So I would agree. Yes, perhaps the perhaps the point is that not just murdering them in any way, but by stoning them, that maybe there's a sense where they believe that that they would legally or ethically silence the message. So it's kind of uh, perhaps uh, perhaps Gregor's point is really well. And, and I appreciate Gregor with that. And uh, let's let's just uh, move with that a little bit in some in some remembrance. There were at least twice that people tried to stone Christ. And accusing him of blasphemy, ultimately, that's what uh, they charged him for so they could crucify him. Then we look and find the, in uh, the seventh chapter of the book of Acts where they stone Stephen, obviously, because they accuse him of blasphemy. That didn't stop the preaching. Their point was to stop the message, but it never got it done. They maybe stopped the messenger, but you can't stop the message, and I appreciate that. Tom, let's put you back on the spot here and ask you to read, if you would, please, verses 8 through 13, and then we'll throw that first question to you as well. Okay, 8 through 13, we read Thank here. Uh, John, you going to put that up? Okay, you got there. Okay. And, and in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking, Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lycaonian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they call Zeus and Paul Hermes, but he was, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priests of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. Thank you, Paul. And I'm coming right back to you with that first question. But in the chat room, was what Paul and Barnabas, what is, is what they did to this impotent man, 
Would you call that faith healing? Or did the man's faith permit Paul to see the worthiness of helping this man? I don't know about the other uh, the other parts of our country here in the United States, but here in Indiana, there are still people that lean very heavily to this so-called faith healing. And so I thought this is a good place to bring that question to light and, and discuss it a little bit. So now, Tom, back to you. Discuss for us a little bit who Paul found and what he did to help this man. Okay, so he goes in the city, and, and well, it just basically says he found a man who uh, was who was unable to walk, and and the interesting observation there is it says it's from his mother's womb. So so you've got you've got somebody with like if you call it a birth defect or something that happened immediately as he was born or part of the process, and uh, and Paul Paul sees him, and uh, he basically heals him. Uh, he heals him. That gives him an opportunity to do some teaching in this city. Of course, uh, as we read in this text, it goes a little further than Paul intended, and he has to deal with some things. Well, and he simply says to the man, stand up straight on your feet. And the man leaped and walked. And so yeah. the, the confirmation of the power of God with Paul is obviously seen. So, Shelton, let's come back to you now. Was this miracle much different than what Peter and John had done for the man that sat at the beautiful gate or the gate called beautiful at the temple back in about Acts chapter 3? Well, no, we see it being the same miracle, really. That man back uh, back there was also lame from his mother's womb, couldn't walk. Uh, people knew that he was that way. And uh, when, when he was healed, when uh, when he was healed, he got up and leaped just as this man uh, says he got up and, and leapt, you know. And so this is something that's pretty impressive to the people that knew he was this way. You know, it's not that they just brought somebody in that nobody would have known. Uh, mm -hmm. This would have been somebody that from his mother's womb was crippled this way. And, uh, of course, we see, I'm not going to step into your next question, but we see the absolute amazement uh, that the people, you know, have because of what they've seen uh, Paul and Barnabas do here. And so, no, that's not much different uh, than what we see Peter and John doing. And even the people's reaction uh, of amazement isn't that much different either. That's exactly right. And if you wish to go into that next question, do so, because I've got another one in my mind up here that I'm going to throw to Paul in just a minute. But uh, go ahead and step on that third one for a minute and, and, and tell what this reaction of the townspeople was. Well, the townspeople were absolutely amazed. You know, they had seen... Paul and Barnabas healed this man. They they were amazed, and they even thought, being quite a bit of an idolatrous nation, thought that they were gods that had come down in the likeness of men, thought that they had taken on uh, physical earthly bodies, but that they were uh, what they call Zeus and and Hermes. Mm -hmm. And uh, then, of course, you even see the, uh, the leader there, the priest of the temple of Zeus, even bring sacrifices, intending to, to offer sacrifices uh with the multitude. So it's going to be interesting moving on into this next section, how Paul and Barnabas handle uh, being called gods and, and wanting, you know, the people wanting to sacrifice for them. We'll get to that momentarily. Now, Paul, this is a surprise question and I, I apologize for springing it on you, but uh, I, I think you're wise enough to handle it. In Acts chapter three, where we find this miracle worked upon a lame man, lame from his mother's uh, womb, and here, while the man leaped 
in Acts 3 and ran through the temple praising God. And the man here leaps and walks. There's no, there's no record that says in absolute proof that either of these men obeyed the gospel. So we can't say for positive that they did, but we would hope that they did. What's your thoughts about that? Well, I think you, you say exactly right, because we're going to limit ourselves to what the text says, uh, that we can assume a lot of things. But those assumptions may or may not be true. That's and true. so uh, there are things sometimes that we'd like to know uh, that we're just not told. We can look at a number of the Bible uh, accounts that were given, and we're told what we need to know, what, what God wanted us to know. But there are questions we can ask that we sometimes just don't know the answer to. Uh, I would hope that uh, here we see that one of the purposes of these miracles was to confirm the teaching. And I would hope that, that a man like this and a man like in Acts 3, uh, having uh, heard this word, would come to believe uh, because they had seen this proof of, uh, of the teaching that was brought forth and that they would obey the, that truth. But we sometimes people can surprise us a, a lot. Mm-hmm. And so we just don't really know. And so maybe you were looking for greater wisdom than that. But I, I'd say that we, we just don't know. And that's the exact right answer, Paul. The reason I'd ask you that is so that we can share with our audience this fact. Isn't it true that God is so gracious and so kind to so many people in so many ways? And yet they do not return the true appreciation those kindnesses even to the point of physical healings and obey the gospel and it's kind of slapping god in the face as i see it you know they they uh they ask for prayers that they might be cured or prayers for this prayers for that and the other thing and those prayers are answered in a favorable way only for people to reject the gospel of christ that would really heal them spiritually and otherwise uh, it's just an observation that I, I appreciate you answering that so we could make that observation. Uh, I think that's a great point, Mike, uh, as you look here. And, and we don't know what their reaction was. They may have obeyed the gospel, but certainly, they may have. But certainly we see uh, in places like Romans chapter 1 th- that it talks about those who don't come to see their responsibility and their accountability before God mm-hmm. are without excuse because he has shown himself uh, both by his power in creation and by the kindness that is bestowed upon us as his creatures, uh, that we, we ought to come to uh, want to seek him out. I, I appreciate that, Paul. I, I guess I've just been preaching for so many years that it still astounds me that I don't understand people rejecting the gospel of Christ. I don't understand that. Hey, Mike. Well, yes. Let me jump in real quick with one observation. Um, I just thought this was interesting. Why would these people respond in such a way, I mean, to to call Paul and Barnabas gods? You think Mm -hmm. about it, it doesn't appear that he went into a local synagogue. At least there's there's no record of it. So this teaching that he's doing could have been to a whole group of Gentiles who were idol worshipers. And despite what he is saying, they see the miracle. And because we're outside of the, the safety of the synagogue and everything, they just jump on it as if they're gods. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's it's interesting to know. It's almost like him being at the Aragopagus. You know, yes. With, you know, without the common ground of Judaism, here he's just talking to them about, and, and they, they perceive what they do in the way they've always perceived things like that. 
Well, and that's coming into this next section, so I'm coming back to you with that, John, so keep your mind centered right there. Uh, let, let's go to Brian and see if there's any reaction to this chat room question that uh, what what Paul did for this uh, impotent man, what, would you call that faith healing, or is it the faith that Paul saw in this man that counted him worthy of receiving this miracle? Uh, thank you, Mike. It looks like we do have a response uh, in our YouTube chat from Gregor Hinckley. Gregor says, Jesus was unable to heal in his hometown due to a lack of faith. It is the power of God that heals, not the healed by faith, but because of faith. God is the cause and faith is the trigger. I appreciate that. Again, Gregor's hit it head on. Uh, the so-called faith healers of today folks that, that uh, seemingly receive that that healing uh, well without going into great about it, they're fakes um, but but I appreciate this the, the fact that Paul saw this man worthy of it he shared with him something that was much greater like Peter and John did at the temple with the lame man silver and gold have we none but such as we have give we unto thee and and this this miracle most certainly would have convinced the man, if nothing else, that God is in charge. Mm -hmm. And like Paul discussed, it, it is hopeful that he obeyed the gospel. Well, John, let's come back to you because we, uh, you brought up the interesting point here, and we want to factor that in. Please read verses 14 through 18, and then we're going to come back to you about these gods. All right, we'll do that, Mr. Mike. 14 through 18. All right, so we read... But when the apostles, Barnabas and Saul, heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God, who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely refrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. John, in our day and time, I'm not going to name names, but I do know that there are some brethren that would eat this kind of esteem for breakfast. They would love to lap this up. But Paul and Barnabas treated it much differently. And uh, I, I, I find it quite interesting that they resented it. I want you to talk about that, but let's put the chat room question together here. Why did Paul and Barnabas reject this praise from these people in this fashion? To you, John, I would ask, were, were Paul and Barnabas angry and hateful in their reactions? Or did they simply show a frustration uh, that these people called them gods, small g. Well, I think we've got a dual situation going on potentially within the minds of the apostles. And first and foremost, I don't see, like what you were asking, I don't see them being angry per se. Um, but th there's two different things that they would have known, maybe even three if we wanted to group it like that. First off, they truly respected God and fully understood where all things come from and all the miracles that were done 
had never been done by the apostles per se. It's truly from God, uh, the name of Jesus Christ, and, and so forth. The second thing is, they had they probably still remembered what happened to Herod when he took the praise as being a god. All right, so they had potentially firsthand experience as to how God deals with people who accept the praise, not to mention the instances in the Old Testament where God mm. turned on individuals like Moses when he said, look here, you rebels, what we must do for you. So, But, but I think for, first and foremost, we have them being very, very distraught because they are treating them as gods and they are anything but gods. And their goal wasn't to have the people to bow down before them but to have them to submit to the living God who had done all the wonderful things for them. Um, so I, I don't think they were really afraid of being struck dead by God, but this was a very serious thing that was going on, and they needed to get the people not to worship them, but Jehovah God. That's the point exactly. Uh, I find in Paul's writings, especially to the Romans, that he deals extensively with this kind of an attitude and says that man ought not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. Yeah. Humility is, is to preaching the gospel of Christ. And while, while all of us know certain individuals uh, from time to time that kind of like to walk six feet above the heads of everybody around them, the ones that we respect the most are the ones willing to get down and wash our feet. Um, the, the humility of, of Christ is undoubtedly the greatest example of preaching the gospel that we'll ever find. Here, Paul and Barnabas, highly esteemed by these people, and I'm satisfied that they did it purposely. Uh, that is, they, they felt Paul and Barnabas deserved this recognition, simply were ignorant of the fact that there were no gods, small g. Yeah. There's the God of so let's come to the next question with that. Hey, Mike. Uh, Mike. Yeah, go ahead, Tom. Yeah, yeah. Uh, real quick observation. I, I, there's a thread that I'm seeing through this entire chapter. Uh, we are dealing with people that are newly converted, and notice the emotional reaction to what goes on, both good and bad. And, and the reason there's an emotional reaction is they're not grounded in the word yet. Absolutely. I, I mean, and, and, and you're seeing it in all of these things, the way that uh, what's about to happen to Paul and, and Barnabas, the, the attempt to stone him, having to leave because of that, turning, trying to turn him into gods. They're seeing something great and they're emotionally reacting. Um, well, uh, that's why we got to be careful to make sure when we're studying with somebody that their response is not merely emo an emotional response. And a verse that comes to my mind is Ephesians 4.14. We're dealing with uh, teachers of, of various sorts. The, uh, the purpose of it is to ground people so that they will not be tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Well, you're so exactly so try right. to see that in this chapter. You're exactly right. And, and, and so let me give you this next question. I was going to come to you anyway with it. So I appreciate you, you getting to that point. What were these useless things that Paul urged them to turn from? And instead, to whom should they have turned? Yeah. And, and, and the interesting thing about the, the useless or worthless things, begun to be, uh, depending on the, the, the text, is he's not trying to insult them. He, he's just, uh, I, I think one of the things he's saying is, you know what, you've seen some miracles here. 
what have your gods done? Yeah. So you might look at it from the standpoint of powerless. Uh, yeah. the, uh, you're trusting in something that has no real power. I'm showing you who has power, and I'm encouraging, encouraging you to listen to what he tells you to do. And that's the ultimate point that I think that when he's trying to turn them to God, he's turned turn to the one who can really do something, somebody that's not a myth. Or, or that you, that stories have been made up about who they are, which when you think about Zeus and Hermes and you think about the, the whole Greek mythology and if you want to add Roman mythology to that and all those things, which they were very much into, it was a bunch of fairy tales. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and not being insulting in saying that, but, but the point is, is here you see real power. Consider this. Yeah. Oh, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. If we can go back now to the chat room question uh, before we even get to the last one of ourselves on this, let's, let's go back to the chat room and pick that up. Why did Paul and Barnabas reject this praise from men? We do have one answer there. Uh, it's from Gregor in the YouTube chat. And Gregor's answer is the message of the gospel is to the glory of God. Paul and Barnabas did not desire the glory for acts of God. They were properly humbled in the knowledge of the source of the power they wielded. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It, we, mankind, I guess, would have a tendency to like to have his back padded once in a while, but a good old elder that I worked with for several years would make the statement publicly to the congregation. He said, everybody deserves a pat on the back, but a lot of times they needed a lot farther down and a lot harder than what they're expecting. Uh, that's, that kind of keeps me humble, and I, I appreciate it, Ray, for that. Uh, Mike, I, Mike, yeah, go ahead, Brian. I just wanted to throw one last thought out there. One of the important things that we should see is there's a, there's a pattern, and really I think Tom kind of alluded to some of this. There's a pattern of the style of preaching for the apostles in the book of Acts about the message that they brought to the Jews and the message they brought to the Gentiles. So in Acts chapter 2 and 3 and uh, all the way up to Acts chapter 13, we see the sermons that are preached to the Jews. And they oftentimes appeal to the Old Testament. In fact, they always appeal to the Old Testament, the words of the prophets, the things spoken beforehand, as the authority for the message that they bring and the identity of Christ as God. However, it's kind of interesting and obvious for, uh, or for obvious reasons that whenever they preach to the Gentiles, here in Acts chapter 14 and again in Acts chapter 17, the sermon is presented very differently. And Paul mentioned this earlier, that in Romans chapter 1, the understanding is that the characteristics about God, especially for the Gentile, are observed less in the Scripture because they're not familiar with the Scripture. And the appeal is made to nature, both in Acts chapter 14 and Acts chapter 17. The Apostle Paul appeals to the, the things of the world as the evidences for the existence of God. And then he goes on to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's just an interesting pattern to be aware of, of how these men preach the gospel of Christ to two different groups with two different mm -hmm. understandings of the nature of God. One group that knew God, one group that did not. And how that they used a different appeal of authority in both instances. And that, I think, is a profitable and useful tool for us to understand of how we present the gospel uh, to different people with different understandings, what authority we're appealing to for the foundation of the case that we're making. One of the greatest uh, advice uh, items of advice ever given 
was the individual that says, if you're going to teach someone, start where they are. Don't start where you want them to be. That's exactly and I think that's exactly what Paul does here. Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. Well, hey, uh, uh, Mike, I was just going to yeah. say one thing about this is that uh, the gospel does appeal to us on many levels uh, and the people on many levels. And an emotional response is not necessarily a, a bad response. Uh, an emotional response is sometimes needed. I think in Acts 2, they were cut to the heart. Oh, yeah. uh, we see sometimes people, when they uh, are uh, repentant, that we see that coming with tears. And, and so mm-hmm. we need to have an informed faith, but it needs to also utilize our center of emotions as well. Uh, and we don't need to serve God just out of an, in, you know, in, purely just information, but it needs to touch our heart and our mind. And, and we need to feel our religion as well as just to be informed. You're exactly right, Paul. Colossians chapter three proves that uh, without question. Our life as, as human beings, when we obey the gospel, our life is dead. And yet it's alive in Christ. And it becomes Christ who lives in us. Galatians 2.20, Colossians 3, uh, 1 through 17 and all. We, we mortify in the flesh those deeds of the body. But the emotional side is still very real. It becomes a uh, not membership to a club. It becomes a life that we desire to live. And that's probably why Paul here, uh, as he addresses them, does not... Uh, rip into them like he maybe would the uh, the Galatians. Exactly. He's very, very patient with these people. Very, very patient with them. And that that, that leads me, Paul, uh, if you would please read uh, read 19 and 20 here and uh, just a brief discussion about this uh, for us, if you would, because Paul's reaction is still very humbling, and yet the people can't get over this. I'll be happy to do that. In Acts uh, 14, I'll read verses 19 and 20. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. Go ahead, Paul, and and talk to us about that. I, I have... I've been threatened. Uh, I, I came home one night from preaching a meeting, and my car had been smashed by the neighbor's car and, and all that. I've received threatening letters in my life. But I've never, and I don't want it to sound like the modern term for it, but I've never been stoned. No, uh, what we see here, uh, Paul, <laughs> Paul is... Uh, they attempt to execute him. Uh, they bring a physical beating on him. And uh, normally when we see a, a stoning, people don't survive a, a stoning. And so uh, we see this terrible uh, punishment uh, that is inflicted for him just doing what is right. Uh, I was impressed by the fact he went back into the city. Uh, and yeah. the next day he, he leaves. And so uh, that, that was interesting. I would think carry me on to Derby. Uh, don't, don't, don't leave me here, but but that's right. And so when we think about persecution, we do have to be willing to suffer that. And uh, in, in fact, in Bible times, sometimes uh, it was considered to be somewhat of a badge of honor to be counted worthy to suffer 
for the cause of Christ. I appreciate you bringing that up, Paul. Paul himself would write to the churches of, of Galatia and say to them, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And I've always believed that that is the scourgings, that's the stonings, etc. But it did not deter him from preaching the gospel. So let's, for uh, especially for the younger fellows that are trying to start in preaching, and I think I think of Shelton uh, among them. Shelton, I wish you very well in this upcoming work that you've encountered here and, and, and endeavored to do. But understand, my young friend, there are going to be days when you kind of wonder, why did I put the toolbox away? That's just part of preaching. But don't let it deter you from standing firm for Christ. I, I look at Hebrews, and, and I'm, I'm taking advantage of my age again. I have a habit of doing that, I guess. But the older I get, I look at Hebrews, the 13th chapter, and verses 5 and 6, and find with that evidence that God has never left me. He's never forsaken me. Like King David said, I was young, now I'm old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. But I've always felt that right there helping. And when we lose sight of that, then we lose sight of the reason we started preaching in the first place. Don't ever do that, brethren. Don't ever lose sight of why you preach the gospel of Christ. Well, and finally, Tom, let's, let's come back to you, and we'll bring you and Shelton in on the last of this and, and hopefully be able to close it out in the next eight minutes. If you would, Tom, please uh, finish the chapter for us in reading verses 21 through 27, and we we have discussion there as well. Okay. So it says, and, and when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Thank you, Tom. For the chat room, and we'll let you consider this quite deeply, and I'm satisfied that six minutes now or so is not going to leave us enough time to fully discuss it. But here's the question. What is the value of elders in every church of Christ? We go on probably six months in answering that, but we'll have to keep it brief. But what is the value of elders? Tom and Shelton, you, you can team up on this one if you want to. What's the obvious value of Paul's continued preaching when he says we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God as he returns to the preaching and strengthening of the brethren? You go ahead, Tom. I'll take the second part. <laughs> right. Well, I... Uh, I I see in this uh, a couple of things associated. One of them is we just can't give up no matter what happens. And 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 I know we've talked about all throughout this chapter. There's there's a price, or there could be a price associated with uh, with the preaching of the gospel. When I say could, I mean there could be a physical price of persecutions and so on. 
and uh, uh, don't let that keep you from entering the kingdom of God. Let that strengthen your resolve and make you closer to the kingdom of God. Shelton, finish it. You want me to go into the yeah. elders? Yeah. Uh, Why is it needful? Well, it's absolutely needful because we see earlier before he goes into saying that he's appointed elders in verse uh, in verse 22. He says he went back to those places and was strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith. And I believe that elders are absolutely a, uh, a great aid in, in those things. And when we look at, you know, the role of an elder, we know that elders are shepherds or overseers of the, the work there, of the disciples that meet in that area. And what they're doing is they're responsible for exhorting the brethren to continue in the faith. They're responsible for maintaining the doctrine, being guardians of the doctrine, uh, and not letting any false teaching uh, enter into the teaching that's being done to those, to, those, uh, to those of their flock. And so I think that the elders of this congregation would have definitely been able, once Paul and Barnabas had to leave, uh, it would have been easy for them to then continue in the faith stay strengthened in the doctrine and in their resolve and, and be able to, to stand firm and, and to walk in the way that they should walk once they have to leave. I appreciate that very much, Sheldon. I, I love the fact that God chose this name for that office, elder. It obviously implies one that is older and wiser. And when you read the qualifications of Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, it is obviously one who is experienced in the faith. The church for this time wasn't very old, obviously, but old enough that these men that were ordained elders were not just shepherds. They were certainly not just business managers. They were leaders of faith. And it is, it's interesting that Paul says that through tribulations, we continue strengthening these brethren, and I'm satisfied they would have had those tribulations as well. Well, the last question I'm going to throw out to the entire panel here. There, there are the following phrases used to express the presentation of the gospel of Christ we're doing when we're studying the word of God and reading it. Uh, one of the most encouraging things about that word is that even though there might be things we have to give up, even though there might be these trials, tribulations, there's a reward waiting for us if we're willing to persevere. I appreciate that, Shelton. I do. Well, Brian, let's go back and see if anybody answered the value of elders in every church, and then we'll close the study for today. We'll do just that. Uh, we do have an answer from Gregor Hinckley in our YouTube chat. Um, just double-checking, we don't have anything in Facebook chat. Uh, but in our YouTube chat, Gregor Hinckley, um, if we, uh, I'll just read that out. The question was, what is the value of elders in every church of, the, uh, in every church of Christ? Gregor Hinckley says, how better to show the glory of God, then to uh, walk out. Oh, I'm sorry, Gregor's, I'm sorry. Gregor's answer is actually to the previous point. I'm sorry. Uh, Gregor, I apologize. I, I uh, misread that. Gregor was actually making a comment about Paul's being stoned to say how, how great that was to uh, mm -hmm. uh, happen like that. So I apologize. Yeah, we didn't uh, get an answer to this question. Yeah, we didn't get an answer to this question. Oh, I'm sorry. wait. There we go. Oh, uh, we just did. Oh, we just, just did. Okay. Keep reading, Brian. Uh, oh, Gregor. Okay, Gregor, thanks. Uh, Gregor, we really appreciate you helping us out a lot. You're a, you're a real benefit to us in the chat room there. Very uh, much. Gregor's comment is, Elder are the shepherds of the local flock, which are members that look to guiding towards the truth in all things, and 
and, and then Gregor makes a comment about our feed uh, going wonky. <laughs> I thought maybe he was going to say, and they feed the congregation. And then I thought, well, is he saying we feed the wonky? And then <laughs> that was my thoughts too. I, I got a little confused there. Uh, Gregor, yeah, thanks, Gregor. Uh, again, we really appreciate you, your comments in here. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and of course, you know, Mike, there's a lot we could say about that too. I think that's- there really is. And I, I appreciate it so much that you've allowed me to lead the study. Thank you, gentlemen, for your good answers, your very positive answers. And thank you as well for your defense of the gospel of Christ. Uh, I, I often speak of you gentlemen, the people that you've never met someday, hopefully that you can, but I, I can't, in, I, I can't speak well enough of the encouragement that this type of study gives to this old man. And I'm trusting the same to everybody that's viewing. Gregor, thank you as well. And I'll turn it back over to John and let you close us out. John, I was going to throw in one one thing quickly, uh, if I may. And that is that there seems to be sometimes people who don't want elders. uh, I've not experienced that as much as I've heard about that in different places, either individual members or even congregations that think, well, we do just fine without elders. And they don't do just fine without elders because God's plan is for elders and God's plan is right. No matter what our judgment is, God's plan is right. And amen. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, Paul. I've I've had brethren make comments like that too. I remember uh, years ago in a, in a men's meeting, a congregate, which, which really, you know, you have to ask where, where is the authority for a men's meeting? Uh, I'm not, I'm not challenging that by the way. I'm just saying that we know what God wants. And they made the comment, you know, sometimes I think we're better off in with the men's meeting than elders because everybody gets a comment. And I had and I had to chuckle. Well, I didn't chuckle to myself, I should say. Uh, kind of horrified by that because I thought that's exactly not what God wanted. Was that every person, regardless of their spiritual strength or weakness, is directing the church is a, is a horrible idea. It would be like saying, let's have a get, great big ship and let's just let every single passenger be in charge of steering it. You know, you, you let's have a plane and just let every passenger be the one to fly it. Uh, God's God's plan necessitates that for this aircraft to take off and land safely and get us to our destination, this this church that we've boarded, you have to have qualified people uh, in that cockpit, so to speak. Um, and this is, you know, I, and I just think it's so important because I think a lot of congregations miss the fact that, that they get caught up on other things that they think they need to be about. This is one of the primary works of a church to establish an eldership. This is one of the first things given to the church is to organize itself by the order that God has given us. And we, and, and I think a lot of times, and I privately messaged you, uh, some of you about this, I, I think a lot of times churches get their priorities wrong and they're thinking about how they want to grow numerically and such. That's not God's first charge. His first charge, Titus chapter one, is to put things in order and appoint elders exactly. to the church. Brian, if I may, with that, the training for the elders, the training for deacons, the training for preachers, the training for Bible class teachers, that starts with the youth. And every congregation needs to realize you you can't start with the old folks and change them. You've got to start with what you've got and train these people not to dream about it, but to focus to the point that's what they're going to do. That's the future, and and I, I appreciate so much you folks uh, telling us about these elders, it is a must. It's not. It's not an add-on. It's not a boy. We're lucky. It's God's plan. Find those men and cause them to desire that office while they're young, so that when they come of age, they still desire it, not for the sake of of, of esteem, 
but for the sake of knowing that the church can be guided right in God's way. It's a good point. It's a good point. And I think it's a great set of thoughts there to close on. There's probably a lot more we could say about this subject, but we'll save that for another time. Mike, thank you so much. You did a very fine job in leading us through the study. I don't know if it's your age and just how much older you are than we are, but I really feel like you. he kind of treats us like he's a teacher and we're the students, and I benefit from that. So Thank you, John. I, I, you're about 95, 90, no. You know, I'm getting there. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, you did it. I always, I always appreciate it when you lead our study. So thank you very thank much. You. Well, we won't hold you any longer. We'd like to thank you so much for joining us for our study today. Next Wednesday, Lord willing, we will be looking at Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Hey, if, if you're, if uh, you're watching this on our YouTube channel, take a moment and click the, the like button, uh, subscribe first and then click the like button and click the uh, bell notifications, what I'm trying to say. And that way you'll receive notifications when we go live. If you're watching us on Facebook, follow us if you would. That way you can keep updated with things that maybe we do or upcoming studies as well. Thank you so much for joining us. If everything goes according to plan, Lord willing, we will meet back here again next Wednesday at 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time. In the Eastern Time Zone, that's at noon. 9 a.m. Pacific Time. 10 a.m. Mountain Time. That's right here at live.truthfactor.com. Have a wonderful week.